Father in heaven, pray that the, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this morning would be pleasing in your sight. And that as we come to your word, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus very clearly in the pages of scripture. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5. As I have opportunity to preach here at Grace, my plan is to continue to work through the Sermon on the Mount and doing some quick math. I figured at the pace I'm going, roughly, it'll take me till about 2014. We will continue on. So uh, a few words before I actually read the passage. Let's briefly recall what has taken place prior to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 4 of Matthew, he tells us that Jesus had been teaching and he'd been healing. And he was astonishing the people, so much so that great crowds were beginning to follow Jesus. And so one day, with a great crowd around him, he goes up on a mountainside. And with his disciples sitting at his feet and the crowds listening in, he begins to teach. And what he taught them was what we have in Matthew 5, or chapters 5 through 7, namely the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of his teaching, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that when he finished his teaching, they were astonished. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their own scribes. So this morning, whether you consider yourself to be a disciple sitting at the feet of Jesus... Or maybe you consider yourself to be one in the crowd, investigating who this Jesus really is. My hope and prayer for us this morning is that we would truly consider what makes Jesus so astonishing. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, speaking of the character traits of a follower of Christ. In other other words, one who has entered into the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus continues with speaking of the influence that the Christian will have, namely as salt and light, as they continue following him and walking in the Beatitudes. And then Jesus shifts the focus to himself in his relationship with the Old Testament scriptures, namely the law and the prophets. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We know often that when Jesus would speak, he would speak in parables. But this here is no parable. Jesus is being very clear with his words. He's very clear that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He is clear that not a dot will pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. And he's clear that those who rightly do and teach, the commandments will be blessed. And finally, he is clear that unless the righteousness of a person exceeds that of the Pharisees, they will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus is very clear, but we have much to unpack in these verses. So much so that this week I will uh, cover as best I can 17 and 18, and then next week we'll focus more on 19 and 20. I must say that I wasn't pleased when I opened a commentary of a man that I trust and read the words, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. It was at that moment that I thought, it's too late. I'm too far in. It was Thursday, I think, when I actually read that commentary and realized I can't uh, pick another scripture verse. I've got to continue with this. Um, But what makes these verses so difficult? What makes it difficult is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What do we do with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament? What do we do with the commands, the detailed commands, and the requirement for righteousness that God has given throughout the law? And what exactly changed when Jesus came on the scene? These are just some of the difficult questions we've got to be able to think through. Is our understanding and following of the Old Testament important for our righteousness? In other words, do we need the Old Testament, or is the New Testament all that we need? I clearly clearly remember back in college, as I was beginning to to pursue righteousness, wrestling over this and wondering what to do with the Old Testament. So really, I did nothing with it. In fact, uh, I remember the Bibles, my Bible, my friend's Bibles. I remember glancing at them one day and realized that uh, the, uh, the last part of the scriptures, namely the New Testament, were fairly marked up and highlighted, but as I flipped back to the Old Testament, it was extremely bare. Uh, Not much marking at all, except a few verses. Um, We did mark and quote some of the verses of the sluggard, uh, the passages in in the Proverbs of, as a door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard turns in its bed. Those are what we committed to memory, because we were in college, as most college students are complete sluggards. Um, Not all students. But, uh, but then also, well, and there were a few other things that we quoted, like verses from the Som- Song of Solomon. We didn't actually quote those to each other, but we had some of those marked in our Bibles. Uh, anyway, we naively discarded the Old Testament, not understanding all the rich ways in which Jesus himself was the object to which everything pointed. And here's what I mean. When we divorce Jesus... From the Old Testament, from his Old Testament roots, it leaves us with a very shallow Christian faith. On the contrary, the more we understand the Old Testament, the more we get at the very heart of Jesus, and the more clearly we see that Jesus is awesome. And as I say that, I recognize that can be a trite statement, because in our culture, everything's awesome. We say things are awesome that really in the grand scheme of life, it's just not a big deal because we have really robbed that word and dumbed it down of its true meaning. But when I say Jesus is awesome, what I mean is as we consider the Old Testament, as we consider the Jesus, uh, all that Jesus fulfilled, it is awesome. In other words, Jesus should inspire awe in our lives as we look at who he is and what he's accomplished. In verses 17, 17 through 20, is of great importance to us, not simply because it talks about Christian righteousness, which we'll cover a lot more of next week, but because it sheds great light on the relationship between 
the Old Testament and the New Testament. In verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I want to capture the thought when Jesus begins with, do not think. When I was in seminary, I had a professor that would often say, please do not hear what I am not saying. It's a little bit confusing. It always took me a little while. What's he saying? He was saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. In other words, oftentimes, he, he was uh, around this professor, some of the things he would say, he could stir up some controversy. But oftentimes, it was because he was misunderstood. He would teach something, and people would assume a lot of other things. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. See, suddenly Jesus appears on the scene, and he's not saying what all the religious leaders around him are saying. He's not saying what the scribes and the Pharisees are saying. They would spend all their time expounding on the Old Testament laws. But Jesus comes on the scene, and as a rabbi, he gathers a group of disciples to himself, but he wasn't saying what everybody else was saying. He didn't begin with the heavy-handed teaching of the law. He wasn't saying, keep the law, keep the law. But instead, what he was saying is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. And Jesus continued with, you are salt of the world. You are light in the world. And it did not sound like law to the ears of the Pharisees. But what Jesus was doing, he was teaching the very heart of the law. He was teaching what the law always intended. And it's captured in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That was always the intent of the law. That we are always, God's people are always to hunger and thirst from the heart after righteousness. But many, including the scribes and Pharisees, misunderstood that. And throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we see that Jesus preached an extraordinary doctrine of grace and the love of God. Even an example of that, uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. If you think about it, the son runs away from his family. He shuns his family. He squanders all his riches. He shames his family. What would the Pharisees have done with that? They would have been tempted, my guess is, to consider stoning the kid. But Jesus uses that parable and shows an extraordinary grace and love of a heavenly father. The Pharisees missed it. The Pharisees didn't hear law coming out of Jesus' mouth, so they assumed he was rejecting the law. And to make matters worse, Jesus baffled the scribes and the Pharisees because of the very lifestyle he lived. Jesus spent too much time with women. According to the Pharisees, and this is a teaching, uh, a teaching of them that I'll quote, Pharisees would say, He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law, and at last will inherit Gehenna. Okay, so if you miss that, what the Pharisees would say is if you spend a lot of time with women and not enough time studying the law, you're going to hell. Now, don't get me wrong. I will preach this to my boys at least until they get through the high school years. <laughs> that is another matter. Um, Jesus didn't play by their rules. Here's another one. 
Jesus also spent way too much time with sinners in their thought. And here is a quote from the Pharisees. Keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked. And again, Jesus did not play by their rules. Jesus is telling his disciples, don't hear what I'm not saying, because Jesus knows he's going to be misunderstood. Look at his last beatitude. Blessed are those, blessed are you when you are persecuted and people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus knows, knows that he's going to be falsely vilified by the scribes and Pharisees, but he wants to make sure that his disciples, his disciples understood that he perfectly understands the law, that he perfectly obeyed the law, that he perfectly teaches the law of God. And Jesus, as we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is about to correct the faulty interpretations that the scribes and the Pharisees came to about the law of God. At least six times, Jesus says, you have heard it say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And that would have been absolutely shocking to their ears because they really looked up to the teachers of the day. And here Jesus comes and says, they've said this, but here's what I say. Think about it. Think how shocking this would be. Say, for instance, if I stood up here this morning and say, you have heard Bill say, blah, blah, blah. But I say to you, it's awkward, isn't it? I feel it even right now. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, awkward. Some are thinking, you're fired. <laughs> but that's, that gives us an indication how shocking it would have been for Jesus to say, you've heard it say, but I say to you. He spoke with great authority. And so what we have to understand as we look at the Gospels, we have to understand the tension there. That first, uh, two principles are important. One principle is that Jesus is in complete harmony with the Old Testament scriptures. But the second principle is that it's, he is in complete disharmony with the faulty interpretation of those around him. So Jesus has to make it clear. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And even in verse 18, Jesus fleshes this out further. He says, For truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Some of your versions of the Bible may say, until the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen. In other words, what Jesus means is, not the smallest letter of, a he, of the Hebrew al alphabet, not the smallest mark on a Hebrew letter will pass away until all is accomplished, until the end of time, until we have entered in to the new heavens and the new earth that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So we must ask, when Jesus speaks of fulfilling the law and prophets, what is he referring to exactly, and how does he fulfill them? The very word fulfill, what it means is to carry out and to fill up the law's intent to show the goal for which it leads. And Jesus is saying that he achieves all the purposes of the law and the prophets in his life and in his ministry. And Luke picks this up as well. In Luke 24, if you remember, after Jesus' resurrection from the grave, but before he ascended to the right hand of his father, there's an account where two men are walking on the road of, of Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside them, but they do not recognize who he is. 
And these men are talking about the accounts of the day. And so Jesus is inquiring, so what are you thinking about all this? And with great sadness, they say, we thought he was the one. We thought he was the redeemer of Israel that was going to come and change everything. And Jesus looks at them and he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in all the law and prophets, and when that phrase is used, it means the entire scripture. So Jesus is with these guys, explaining to them from Moses on how the scriptures are fulfilled in him. There's a game that I've played um, various times on road trips of... Okay, so if you could be in any conversation, if you could eavesdrop on any conversation in history, what, would, what conversation do you want to hear? It's a great one to get, you know, good conversation and allow the miles to roll on. Uh, anyway, so anyways, um, the, uh, but as I thought through that, this would be probably my top list of if I could eavesdrop on any, any conversation, this would be the one of just hearing Jesus teach on how all the scriptures apply to him. And we get a picture of that. Matthew is good to show us that throughout his gospel, the way in which it all points to him. Much of the Old Testament contains predictive prophecy, looking forward to the days of the Messiah. And earlier I mentioned that Matthew invites us to take a look at how Jesus is so astonishing. So what I want to do is quickly fly through. And when I say fly through, I have quite a few verses. So feel free to try to keep up with me. But my goal is to fly through a lot of the prophecies that Matthew highlights. And he begins with one in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he's speaking of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. So the prophet obviously spoke of a time when God would come among us. And then in 2, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is quoting from Micah 5.2. It's speaking of the very place Jesus would be born. And then in 3.3, 3, For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, Specifically, Isaiah 40, verse 3, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah 40 is an interesting passage of the Lord speaking comfort to his people. And here we have this prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist who comes. And what he speaks is actually comfort to the people because he's preparing the way for the great comforter. Then we have in chapter 4, in verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of... Actually, let's just go straight to 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is a very significant portion of scripture. And that it actually is speaking of the Gentiles. That the plan of God's salvation all along was that there would be a great light that would dwell in darkness for dark people groups, and it, was, it moved well beyond the Jewish people to include the Gentiles. And we see, if we flip back one page in your Bible, even in the genealogy of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, 
we see the inclusion of the Gentiles in Jesus' family tree. In verse 3, we see Tamar. In verse 5, it speaks of Rahab and Ruth. And in verse 6, it speaks of your, uh, the wife of Uriah, namely Bathsheba. And the thing all these names have in common, they were all women and they were all Gentiles. And this is no mistake that Gentiles made it into the line of Jesus. Because Jesus, God, all along had a grand plan of salvation that would go far beyond the Jews, that would go to the Gentiles as well. And then as we continue on in chapter 12, the Pharisees are upset with Jesus because he has healed a man on the Sabbath. In verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And this is in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my chosen servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him, and he, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He'll not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and his name the Gentiles will hope. Even this is a prophecy of the way the Messiah would reign. He's not going to come in political power and military might, but he brings justice and he brings hope. And again, if we continue on, in 13, verse 35, this was what to fulfill or this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. And this is in Psalm 78, too. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And what parables would do is they would reveal and conceal. They would reveal truth to people who had ears to hear Jesus. But they would also conceal truth from those who had a hard heart. And we see even here the way Jesus spoke in parables. But it was said long ago that there would be a man who would come and he would preach and teach the people. And we could go on with, uh, in chapter 15, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, and this is said in Isaiah 29, 13, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, I just want to pause here. Do you get the sense that Jesus thoroughly knows his Old Testament scriptures? Look at his command of the scriptures, and look at how he applies them in every conceivable uh, situation that he is in. And it just made me pause and think that if we are going to claim to desire Christ-like character, to be Christ-like what does that mean of our understanding of the scriptures? Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. The very words of God that are critical for our lives. Throughout the scriptures in Matthew, and there's a few others, um, we see Matthew going to great lengths to show us the way in which Jesus was amazing. He was astonishing. The authority that had been given to him by God that was spoken of well in the past, in the prophets. And there are many other things that we find from the Old Testament 
that from the New Testament perspective clearly pointed forward to Jesus. In the Old Testament, we find prophets, priests, and kings. And the New Testament helps us to understand that those offices Jesus completely fulfilled. Jesus is a supreme prophet. What does a prophet do? Prophet represents God to the people, speaks the very words of God. And we see clearly in Matthew, Jesus says, you've heard it say, you've heard it said, but I say. Jesus, as our great prophet, speaks the truth of what we need to know about faith and salvation. Also, Jesus is our supreme high priest. What does the high priest do? The high priest represents the people to God. And we see that with Jesus. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we need that type of high priest, even listening to the prayers this morning and the burdens of our church. We should be very thankful for our high priest, that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And also Jesus is a supreme king. What does a king do? A king conquers and a king rules. We see that a great king is a champion of his people. And we see this in David, that he conquered, he ruled his people in righteousness. And he gained many things for his people. But we see this even more clearly in Jesus. This even rings bells to Ephesians chapter 1. That the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ follow because we are under the king. The king has spiritually provided so much for us. So Jesus surpasses, he surpasses the authority of David and yet was obedient to suffering as a servant and brought all history to its focal point as a sacrifice. And in the Old Testament as well, we find the sacrificial system. In the New Testament, we discover that the whole sacrificial system, all the blood and the the goats and the temple, the high priest, all that thing, all of that stuff pointed to the very cross because it's at the cross that the Son of God was enduring his, in his own holy body the penalty prescribed by the holy law of God for the sin of man. One of the ways in which the law has to be fulfilled is that its punishment of sin must be carried out. To illustrate this, there's, years ago I heard a story of a king in a distant land. There was a drought in the land. And so the king ordered that nobody, that, that all the water to be rationed, and nobody was to use it except for the rationed portions that they were to drink. Everybody heard that decree and followed it, except one person, the king's own mother, who did not hear the decree and was watering some gardens, was caught by the people and brought before the king. So here's the king. What is he to do? To be just, he has to penalize her. And the penalty that was decided beforehand was that the person would have to be whipped. And so Jesus could either... Jesus. We'll get to Jesus. The king can either opt to forgive her, but by doing that, he goes against his very law. He goes against the very penalty. On the other hand, he can choose to have his own mother, whom he loves, 
whipped. So what does the king do? What he does is he orders her to be whipped. It's the right thing to do for a king. But then right before they whip her, he covers her with his own body as she's laying on the ground. And he takes the beating himself. And that is a picture of what Jesus has done in the sacrificial system. That's a picture of the penalty of sin that had to be taken care of in a drastic manner. And Jesus, in his body and with his blood, took that penalty for us. And this should leave us in awe. With the time I have left, there's one more point I want to make. And that is that Jesus also fulfilled the law and that he perfectly obeyed the law. Because the law is oftentimes misunderstood. It's misunderstood by the Pharisees. It's misunderstood by the scribes as a means of meriting God's good favor. But that's never, that never wasn't the intent of the law. But rather the law and the scriptures was the rule of life. It was to be the rule of life for those who had entered into the kingdom. It was to be a description of what it means to truly love God and love our fellow man. And the law describes the beauty that God intends to achieve within his sons and daughters as we fully submit to him. And how does it work? The way the, the, way the law works is God, through the Holy Spirit, leads us to the law, which convicts us of our sin. And at that point, the sin, as we're convicted, leads us to Jesus because we need a redeemer. We need somebody who can take care of the sin. And then at that point, Jesus leads us back to the law because it's the law that we see the very heart of God. And so it makes sense that if we look at the law this way, we can begin to love and adore the law with all its demands because we should desire to walk with the Lord. And walking with the Lord, the law describes what that really looks like. To put it a different way, to borrow a line from C.S. Lewis, if we want to walk with God without obeying the law, what we really want is to walk with God without walking with God. And that can't happen, can it? So here's what this all boils down to in my mind. On Friday morning, I was interrupted as I was feverishly trying to write this sermon by quite a commotion right outside my door. And the commotion went something like this. I'm going to try to attempt to do this without really singing. I consider my ways and turn my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commandments. Psalm 119, 59, 60. Some of you recognize that? That's the, oh, thank you. That's the VB, that was the VBS jingle for the third graders. And I would have appreciated if you would have chimed in and helped me with that. But really, it's been said that everything we need to know in life, we learn in kindergarten. I would say everything that we really need to know, we can learn in third grade VBS with that very song. I consider my ways and turn my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commandments. Because that flows right in with this very passage. That Jesus, as he's speaking of the commandments, says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Please pray with me.
Father in heaven, thank you that you have enabled us to consider your ways, that you've even turned our steps, that we can embrace you and thus embrace your statutes, your commandments. Lord, help us to not delay, but to uh, seek with obedient hearts to really follow after you, which means help us to love the law, to understand the law rightly, not as a daunting, mean, um, oppressive set of details in our lives, but rather as what it means to truly love you, to truly walk with you, to truly love others as well. Give us great wisdom here. And thank you for the fulfillment of Jesus in all that he is. It's fulfillment of the laws, the fulfillment of the prophets. We see the fulfillment of him as our great prophet, priest, and king. The fulfillment of him as our sacrifice. Lord, strengthen us by your power and grace to understand these things, but especially to walk in them, that we would have a great vision of Jesus that is astonishing and leaves us in awe. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.